Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. Today is a bonus episode. So that just simply means I don't have my co-host here with me to do story time. So it will be a solo story time. But before I begin with our case, I want to say happy Black History Month. I am recording this on February 8th. So we're just eight days in. But... We're celebrating all month long. I mean, here at Murder in the Black, we celebrate all year long, right? But in this month, and we should always celebrate Black history all year long. But in February, we definitely are super, super energetic about Black history because that is the month that has been dubbed Black History Month. So we're excited. I'm excited. I hope you guys um, enjoy our content in February a lot more just because we will be highlighting and giving context to some issues as it relates to crime in the black community. Um, and so dealing with why uh, the deaths of Tamir Rice, uh, the death of Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, why that has affected our community so much. Why is it that, that the black community is in such outrage because of these deaths? And MD and I will be dropping an episode about two cases that kind of highlights or bring foundation, so to speak, to why those deaths are so devastating to the black community. So we're excited to drop those episodes for you guys. We're excited to highlight um, our history because after all, black history is American history. It goes hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. They are the same thing. Okay, and so I just want to encourage you guys to find out maybe some unknown facts about Black History Month. Um, dig into that no- that knowledge that is out there, um, and find out some 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 different history facts. I know that I have three kids. Um, if you guys didn't know, and they're eight, four, one soon to be five. The four year old's about to be five, and um, I have a three year old. And they, I am teaching them black history facts, even as young as they are. Like, you're never too young to learn. So I, I suggest that everyone learns more about the, the contributions that um, black people have given to this country. So I'm not going to be too preachy, but happy Black History Month. It's a season, and we're celebrating all year long. Just wanted to say that. But um, let's get into our case for today. Um, This is the case of Yolanda Holmes. Yolanda Holmes was born in Chicago. She was a Midwest girl. And she was born February 19th, 1967. So actually her birthday is about to come up, which is kind of cool. I thought that I'm like doing this story during the month of February. Um, and she was five feet tall and everybody called her shorty, but you know, as we like to say in the South, shouty. And I can relate to her because (laughs) I am five feet tall and it is just like literally so hard to find anybody who's shorter than you. And if they are, they're children. So I thought that was like a cute little like connection that I had with her. And she went to Crane High School. Many describe her as like bundle of energy she loved to travel 
she was fun loving. She was just a all around people person. I got the impression that she never met a stranger. Um, she just was a good time. And also she was a spades player. So like if you're in our community, then you know that spades, we don't play when it comes to spades at the, at the cookouts, at family celebrations, you know, barbecues. It is a whole vibe. So when somebody pulls out the spades cards or pulls out the, the cards, I should say, and it's time to play spades, you make sure you have a good partner and you better know how to play. And I say all this knowing full well in this moment that I do not know how to play spades. So give me grace. Blame the people around me. Blame my family for never teaching me. Like, I feel like everybody in my family knows how to play except me. So like, bruh. But moving on. In 1989, um, Yolanda got married. And she had a son named Quamaine Wilson. And they eventually, her and her husband eventually divorced. But Quamaine remains you know, her whole life is centered around her son and just trying to make sure that he has all that he needs, that he's stable, that he's good, creating a good life for him, but also pursuing a career that she really enjoys. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, Yolanda opens up a hair salon and it's called Nappy Heads with a Z. The heads has a Z. And um, I thought that was like a cool play on words um, to me. I thought it was a very innovative name. But she specialized in doing natural hair, locks, twists, braids. And I felt like, you know, for her to be doing that in the late 90s, early 2000s was a bit revolutionary. And the reason why I say that is because if you know, in our community, prior to that, it wasn't a thing like to like wear your natural hair like you had perms. We kind of did away with the the hair revolution that they had in the 70s, which was wearing your natural hair in the in the state that it grows. So that's why afros were so popular and braids and things like that. But as we moved into the 80s and 90s, getting perms and getting your hair done every week and make sure you get a perm every six to eight weeks was a thing. So for Yolanda to like literally step out on faith, so to speak, and start this natural hair salon in Chicago it was a big influence in her community and I thought that that was so you know cool to learn because that allows me to give you guys a little bit of background about hair in the in in black culture like the different movements that took place and also I feel like I had another connection with Yolanda because I'm a hairstylist and I specialize in those same things so natural hair locks twists braids that's what I do. And so people loved her hair salon. It immediately became successful. And it was a community stabilizer. People went there, if you know, like in our community, the barbershops, the hair salons, they are a safe haven. They're where you can go and sit and talk and kiki and gossip, but also where you can go and get wisdom and advice and, you know, find out about just about anything. You sit in a barbershop or a hair salon long enough. Um, you're, you can just have really, really good conversations. So for Yolanda, that's exactly what her salon nappy heads did. It was a community stabilizer and it was ahead of its time, truly. Um, so when her salon became successful, she was, a you know, afforded to send her, her son to private school, give him the life that she wanted to give him and make it comfortable for 
Quamaine and herself. But not only that, she gave back to her community a lot. Like, so, you know, right before school would be about to start in, in August, late August, September for uh, the Midwest, she would make sure that she like organized events so that kids could come and get backpacks and school supplies in her community. So she gave back to the community that gave to her. And, um, you know, she had her sister that would come and get her hair done every Sunday at the um, shop. And so it was just a, cl- a close knitted family, her hair salon family, um, as well as her biological family. It was a family environment. Kwame was not only the apple of his mother's eyes, but the shop and its patrons and staff often called Kwame the shop's baby because they literally saw him grow up. They felt, you know, a sense of, you know, community with Kwame and Yolanda. And so he was just beloved by all, especially his mother. And after he graduated from high school, his mom bought him a Camaro and she continued to support him after high school. So Kwame was his mother's pride and joy and he felt the same way about her. He just loved his mother and adored her. They were extremely close and everyone knew it. He even got his mother's name tattooed on his shoulder. And in 2012, um, you know, Yolanda is just doing great. She had a business of 15 years, nappy heads, and she was a pillar in the community. And everyone knew that if Yolanda was behind something, she was going to come through for you. And they loved her. Like, she was beloved amongst everyone in her community. And because she was doing so well, you know, in her business, she was able to move to the north side of Chicago and get herself an apartment there. And if you're from the Chicago area, please drop a comment. Let me know what y'all think about the north side. Um, but here in Dallas, we have something that is called Uptown. And it's North Dallas. And that's considered like the, you know, the better part of town as it relates to Dallas. Like there's just not a whole lot of crime there. Um, it's a lot of affluent homes. And you just don't expect um, really anything bad to happen in that part of town because the police patrol it it's just a nice part of town and that's when i was researching this case that's what i noticed i was like okay so north side of chicago it was like considered to be where the crime was less you know there were just nice homes there were nice apartments lofts etc so because her business was doing so well she could afford to move up there and she did and she also was in a relationship with a man named Curtis and their relationship was on and off again but in 2012 it was on for sure and so she was just doing very well for herself as I said and her son in 2012 is 23 years old and he has decided that he wants to be a rapper and his mother supports him you know as she always does she supported his dreams supported his career endeavors And so everything is going pretty well for Yolanda. But on September 1st, 2012, Curtis and Yolanda decide to go to dinner. And they grab a couple of drinks. They come back. And according to Curtis, they come back to the apartment and they were intimate and they fall asleep in bed. But on September 2nd at 4.45 a.m., the police dispatcher or the 911 dispatcher gets a call from Curtis. And he's frantic. 
And he's saying that an intruder was in his house. He woke up to a gunshot, first of all. And then he sees in the doorway an intruder with a mask on and a gun in his hand and a, and a knife as well. And he's there. And he's, you know, he's stunned, but he begins to, you know, go into fight or flight. And he starts to fight this guy, like try to get the intruder out of the home, trying to defend himself and, and Yolanda. He finally does get the intruder away, but Curtis is stabbed up. Like his hands are stabbed. Um, you know, there's blood everywhere. He wasn't shot, but he was stabbed several different times. So he's obviously hurt. So when the police arrive at the apartment, they're kind of stunned, first of all, by the whole entire scene. Because when they walk into Yolanda's apartment, there's just blood covered in the entire hallway, like from from ceiling to floor, there's blood everywhere. When they get into her room, they notice that there's a gunshot wound to Yolanda's head. And the, by the way that she was positioned inside of the bed, they could tell that she was asleep when the gunshot was in, you know, administered. She was asleep. And so this attack happened then. But not only was she shot in the head, which was a fatal shot, she was also stabbed in her chest. And I thought that one of the detectives uh, quotes from um, the episode that I watched to research this, she said, you know, I've been to a myriad of crime scenes and it's either the person has been shot with a gun or they're stabbed with a knife. But for me to see both of these in one person suggests overkill. Because when they when they shot Yolanda in the head, that was a fatal blow. So why would you then go and stab her in the chest? It just didn't, it seemed like, you know, this person really wanted to make sure that Yolanda was dead. So this caused just a ton of uproar in the community. As I said, she was a, a pillar of the community. Everybody knew Yolanda of Nappy Heads. Like, we knew who she was. And a couple of minutes, like not a couple of minutes later, but later on in the morning as the detectives are there, um, I someone calls Quamain and they let him know what happened. So he appears at the scene of the crime and he is obviously devastated. He is just, you know, so um, saddened by his mother's death. And there was nothing that seemed, you know, off about his demeanor. He just seemed like he was completely devastated, which... You know, which is obviously so, right? Like your mom just died. This was your world. And his, you know, it's just, it was just a sad, sad situation. And, you know, everybody in the community at this time just was very confused to how this even happened. Like Yolanda was a people person. Everyone loved her. What made anyone do this? That became the question that the that the police was asking, like, how did this happen? Who could have done this? And so they began to dig into the investigation to try to find out who killed Yolanda. So the police began to investigate Curtis. And, you know, as crime junkies, like, you have to investigate the person who's closest to the victim because it's usually them, you know, it's usually them who commits it. And in this case, probably even more so because Yolanda just didn't have a ton of enemies. I mean, everybody just knew that this was either a random act of violence or it just had to be somebody close to her because 
She was the nicest, the sweetest person, and everybody in the community loved her. So the police begin to investigate Curtis, Curtis's story. And they say, you know, what, 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 what happened? They have him review what he said to the 911 dispatcher. And he says, you know, hey, somebody broke in. I saw the intruder. I fought the intruder off. And, um, you know, I, that's it. The person fled the room. So the police say, okay, somebody broke in. He believes it was because of robbery because when they go into the crime scene, they actually see like wads of cash on the ground mixed with the blood of, of Curtis and Yolanda. So they think, oh, maybe it is a robbery too. Maybe this person did break in. But as they do their investigation, they find out that, you know what, this is not a robbery because there was no forced entry at all. And so they just were like, okay, Curtis, you said that somebody broke in, but nobody broke in. And the fact that Curtis was not murdered as well was unusual. Like in a robbery go wrong, why would the person kill Yolanda, but not kill you? It just didn't make any sense to them. They felt like maybe he set this up and staged somebody beating him up just to kill Yolanda. That's a probability, you know, like maybe that's what happened. And so, you know, they began to dig into Curtis, Curtis's and Yolanda's relationship. But before I go into their past relationship, I want to say what they found at the crime scene. So amongst the blood and everything, they were looking for the murder weapon. And they actually found the revolver that was used during the murder. And they found it but it was covered in blood so they were unable to lift any prints off of the gun but also it was somewhat shattered like it malfunctioned so there were parts of the gun that just weren't working and that was off of the gun that should have been uh, put together inside of the gun so they couldn't really use the gun but they were looking for the paring knife and they looked everywhere they said that a paring knife was missing from um, Yolanda's kitchen so they know that somebody used her knife to kill her but they were trying to look for it and they looked in the trash they looked outside of the apartment building they could not find this paring knife but what they did find was an earbud and it was just one but they bagged that and took that in for DNA evidence to be looked at later maybe if they found another lead so that's all they found at the crime scene, which wasn't much. It wasn't much at all. Not a lot to work with. But they began to look at Curtis and Yolanda's relationship. And what they found was that a lot of her friends and family described their relationship as volatile. And there was one particular instance where they got into an argument and Curtis pushed Yolanda. And Yolanda had to call the cops and get him escorted off of her property. And as a result of that altercation, they broke up. It took a hard pause from their relationship, but their relationship was very on and off, as I said before. And so many just felt like if there was anybody who killed her, it was him. And even the police felt like, you know, if he was violent here, it's quite probable that he's violent over here as well. And it ended in her murder. So, you know, they just they were very uncomfortable with it. And not only that drew suspicion to Curtis, but friends and family just knew. It was a rumor that was around the community that he did it. He absolutely killed Yolanda because he had to. Like, no one else would want want to have her killed. 
So, you know, the police, while they're very suspicious of Curtis, they don't have any evidence against him. Like, there's no hard evidence. So what they decide to do in the meantime and between time as they're continuing their investigation is to subpoena his cell phone records because they believe that there, if there's anybody, if there's anything that would point to Curtis being the murderer, it would be, he would be calling this person, trying to get this person on the phone to get over there to kill Yolanda. So it would be in his cell phone records. So he's, they subpoena his and they subpoena Yolanda's cell phone records as well. But she also had a landline. And this is important because, yeah, it's, it's 2022 and who uses landlines anymore? But back in 2012, that was a thing still. And normally people had their landlines still because they wanted to use it for emergencies. And um, she used it for that, but also used it to buzz people into her apartment building. So that's why she had it. So they subpoena those records. It takes a while for those records to come back. So they were waiting on that. But in the meantime, between time, the police went ahead and had a working theory when they questioned a lot of her neighbors. Maybe, just maybe, Curtis and... Yolanda got into an argument and maybe the neighbors heard it. And this is why she ended up dying because they got into a bad argument. And he ended up killing her. So as they query the, the neighbors, the neighbors say to, to the police, listen, we didn't hear anything, nothing like that. We heard nothing, no arguing, none of that. So that kind of killed their theory that way. But the police, thankfully, because the apartment building was new and just they were up to date with technology, there was a ton of surveillance footage, especially a lot of cameras at the entry points of the building where you had to get into the building. So the police had to get with the building manager who, whose name was Mr. Darrell. And it's worth mentioning that Mr. Darrell was black. And a lot of the neighbors told the police, like, Mr. Darrell controls who gets in and out of the building he takes care of everything. He makes sure everybody's straight. Um, you know, so if there's anybody who knows anything, it would be Mr. Darrell. So they get a meeting scheduled with Mr. Darrell. He complies and tells the police, like, yeah, sure, I'll let you look at this footage, you know. But as they sit down and start to talking and get to talking with Mr. Darrell, Mr. Darrell is like, it seems like y'all getting suspicious of me. And they begin to explain to him that, yeah, you know, did you let anybody in the building and People say that you're the one who lets people in and out of the building. What were you doing on the night of the murder type of thing? And he tells them like, hey, listen, like I wasn't even here. I was out of town. Like I wasn't even in this building. And he is very, you know, flustered and was very frustrated when giving his interview about helping the police because he said, you know, I was I was being compliant and I just was very offended that they would even think I had something to do with this murder. And I would just like to pause here and say, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that the reason why there, well, one of the reasons why there's plenty of reasons why um, there's a lot of contention with the, with the black community and police. But one of the reasons is, you know, when it comes to getting questioned by the police, it just seems like they're really not trying to help. And I think there's a fine line, especially in the case of Mr. Darrell, there's a fine line between suspicion and I'm asking questions to help and to get to a solution or resolve so to speak there's a fine line between that and harassment right like I gave you the answer that you want I answered your question 
but yet you're still probing me. That's harassment. And that's what they did to Mr. Daryl. Like, Mr. Daryl was helping them out, trying to give them the surveillance footage they needed. And up until the point where they got what they needed, they were harassing him because they felt like, well, you might, you must have had something to do with it based on what the neighbors said. Like, it's like, come on, guy. You know, and I think law enforcement, not all law enforcement, but they need to do a better job of questioning, like where it doesn't feel like you're harassing me. You know, I need, I feel the need to be defensive instead making it to where the person feels open enough to talk to them and give them the information they need, especially when that person is already being compliant, right? So they finally get to the surveillance footage of the night of the murder or the morning of the murder. So at 4.30, somebody comes to the intercom and they say, like, you know, they're, they're trying to get in. And this person is a male. He has on a ton of sweats and a hood, a hoodie on covering his head. And they think this is their guy. And this guy is noticeably trying to, like, avoid the camera. And this is at the end of summer in Chicago. So there's really no reason why this person should be so bundled up. And in their hand, this male is carrying, like, what appears to be dry, like, dry cleaning clothes. Like, because it has the plastic covering on top. And they're trying to figure out what is going on. Like, this, this has to be our person. So 10 minutes pass, and the guy with the hoodie comes out but he's wearing different sweats this time but he also exits the building with another guy following close behind him so the police naturally are like Mr. Daryl like since you know everybody in this building do you know this person Mr. Daryl says yeah I know who they are but because he endures like so so much of hard questions and questioning and suspicion about himself he wasn't readily trying to give up this person's name because this person who appeared in the footage with the murderer, um, he knew, stay in the building. And he and Mr. Darrell actually mentored him. It was a young college student um, named Michael. And he just didn't, he didn't want to involve Michael in it because he knew, he was confident that Michael had nothing to do with Yolanda's murder. So he just didn't want to readily give this information. But eventually he did. And they set up a meeting with Michael. And Michael was cleared of any involvement with Yolanda's murder. So, so far, Mr. Daryl is X'd off, off of the list as a suspect. So is Michael. And they try to ask Michael, like, hey, did you, do you remember any physical characteristics of the person you walked out the door with? And he's like, absolutely not. Like, this happened three weeks ago. I can't remember that far back. I don't know who that person was. I can't even begin to tell you any physical characteristics about that person. So that's a dead end, right? But shortly after that, they receive the cell phone records and they're able to clear Curtis because on the night of the murder, Curtis doesn't make any phone calls at all. They start to look for pattern and numbers, you know, in the days leading up to the murder. They don't find a thing. And so they're able to clear Curtis of any involvement in Yolanda's murder. But they do look at Yolanda's numbers um, or cell phone records and they find that there's just one number that keeps popping up and that was braided. Well, not braided, but that was, I'm sorry, that was um, called back to back to back to back on the night of the murder. So they like circle this, this number and they um, run the number back to see who it belongs to. They find out that this number belonged to a man named Eugene Spencer. They run his background information and they find out that Eugene was a criminal and he had a criminal history, like a long rap sheet. 
And they decide to bring in Eugene for questioning. So the police have Eugene in the police station for questioning. And the first thing they do is they show Eugene a picture of the apartment complex. And they ask him, have you ever been here before? He quickly says no, but a couple of minutes pass by and he says, well, you know, is that the place where that lady got murdered? And they knew they had him. They said, okay, this is our guy. But they needed a confession. So they go on to like ask him more about it. He denies it. But then they bring out the evidence of the earbud. And they show him a survey the surveillance footage of the male in the in the footage with the earbuds in his ear. And they also show him the actual earbud they found on the floor. And they say, Hey, we're gonna know it's you if we do an a, uh, if we do a DNA test. And so at that point he like spills over and tells them. Yes, it was me. It was a robbery gone wrong. I was trying to uh, get money. She woke up. He he attacked me. I had to shoot her. Um, and yeah, just the robbery went, went wrong. So the police like, okay, you know, we got a confession, but it doesn't explain how you gain access to the building. Like, how is it that you gain access to this building? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, he kind of just, avoids that for a while says he doesn't know you know just kind of plays with them for a little bit and they let an hour go by he's still saying the same thing and then he says you know what I didn't get paid the way that I was supposed to for this murder so I'm gonna tell you everything I'm gonna tell you exactly who killed Yolanda and he tells them he says that Quamaine Yolanda's son set up the entire murder. I mean, orchestrated the entire thing from the time he got there to getting access to the building, to shooting her and then stabbing her. He orchestrated the entire thing. So he says, you know, I know you guys saw in the footage that I had on earphones or earbuds. I was talking to Quamaine the entire time. So on September 1st, Quamaine told his mother, hey, mom, I'm going to be home. It's just going to be late but I'm going to need you to let me up. And it was like an understood thing. Like, that's what they did sometimes. Sometimes he would come in late or spend a night at his mom's place, and she would just buzz him in. That's exactly what he had Eugene do, pose as if he was Quamaine. And so Eugene buzzed in the number, and Quamaine said, hey, man, you don't have to speak. Just cough, and my mom will know that it's – she will – she would know that it's me because that's what they did. He would just cough. Yolanda would know, okay, this is Quamaine trying to get inside. And she would go to the door, unlock it, and then go back to sleep. And that's exactly what she did when Eugene buzzed her, her number that day. So he gained access to the building. And then because she unlocked the door thinking it was her son, he gains access. And he comes in and he shoots Yolanda in the head. Quamaine is on the phone. The entire time this murder is happening. After he shoots her in the head, he tells Eugene to go to the to the kitchen, get a knife, and make sure that that B is dead, and orders him to stab his mother. So unsettling. But at this point, you know, Eugene tells the police, I thought that Quamaine had set me up because I didn't know that her boyfriend or anybody else was going to be in the house that night. And this just further like points to the fact that 
Curtis had nothing to do with it, right? Like, because Eugene had no idea that he was going to be there. And clearly, neither did Quamaine. So, like, Curtis being there was the surprise. Like, it was like, what? He's here? So, he quickly, you know, he said, I, I ended up hitting him with the gun, which was why the gun was shattered. So, actually, when the police say there is a delay from the time that Eugene leaves the apartment to when Curtis calls the 911 dispatcher, it really is because Curtis was knocked unconscious. So it took him a, you know, a little bit of time to get his gatherings because he was hit with the gun. So the the part of the story was kind of shaky or the police were questioning and suspicious of him and his story. It was because of that. And that was the lag time in between the person leaving, Eugene leaving, and then Curtis calling 911. So that explains that and further proves that Curtis had nothing to do with it. So the police then arrest Eugene, obviously. Um, And, you know, it's just a sad thing because Quamaine gave, you know, Eugene the gun. He ordered it. He told him to stab her. And Eugene was promised $70,000. I mean, $7,000. I'm sorry. He only got 70 bucks. And that is why he turned on Quamaine. So the police take Quamaine in for questioning. And it's at this point that we find out what was going on with Quamaine that made him execute a murder on his mother. And we find out that Quamaine was laid off from his job just prior to his mother dying. She also cut off financial assistance to him. She wanted him to be a man, stand up on his own, make his own way. And you have to understand that Yolanda, her mother had just died. And even though she had a sister, like truly her family um, was Quamaine. And she left everything to Quamaine. She left life insurance policies, the shop, um, her money to him. And he decided that I don't have a job. You're going to cut me off financially, mom. I don't want to wait no more to get access to your money. I'd rather kill you. And that's so sad to even think of. Now, I highly suggest that you guys go to YouTube and type in Quamaine Wilson or even Yolanda Holmes murder. And you'll see some videos pop up of Quamaine in the weeks le- uh, in the weeks after her death, his mother's death, online pulling out wads of cash from an ATM. He cleared her $90,000 bank account. He's pulling out wads of cash and throwing it up, making it rain to a crowd of people who he calls his quote unquote fans. It's just so sickening to watch. Because he wanted to be a rap star, he killed his mother. Because he didn't want to work for his own money, he killed his mother. And you you like, you like, know this as you're watching it. It's just devastating to know that somebody would do that. So as he's being questioned by the police, he's trying to talk his way out of it. Like trying desperately to talk his way out of it. But the police are like, no, you can't. Because then they present evidence that Eugene snitched on him and they know everything. And while he did not confess, he was charged with murder and he pled not guilty. However, the the mountains of evidence against him were 
there and they convicted him of murder. He received a 99-year jail sentence because of it. Eugene received a 100-year jail sentence for his part in the crime. And this is how this story ends. It ends right here. And while I'm happy that there was some form of justice for Yolanda and her family, it's a double-edged sword, right? Um, Yolanda's gone. Her son is locked away for forever. And there's just no peace that comes to her family as a result of this. I mean, they, they lost two people. They lost Yolanda. They lost her son. Um, people lost their friend, a pillar in the community. It's no longer there. And so there's some semblance of justice because Chicago PD did, did their due diligence to catch who murdered her. But it's just so sad that it ended that way. It ended over something as trivial as money. And so when I think about my takeaway from this particular story, I find myself all throughout this story, um, you know, remnants of myself throughout this story, things that I identify with as well. Um, you know, she was five feet. I, I'm five feet. Um, she was a hairstylist, a natural hairstylist. So am I. She was a mother and I'm a mother. And I think that mothers have a special role. Um, we nurture children from the womb. You know, we um, take care of them. We provide for them. And in Yolanda's case, this was her only child. She made sure that he had the best of the best. Um, and that he was comfortable. And, you know, at the moment that she exhibited tough love and said, son, you're going to have to stand up on your own and get a, get a job and, and work for yourself. And I'm going to have to cut off money. He decided to murder her. And I think that the lesson that I take away is that as parents, you do the best that you can, right? You know, and you try to create balance with, you know, enough tough love, enough love, right, um, to try to, you know, raise successful citizens, good citizens. And I think she did everything she could. However, it ended in her demise. And that's just so sad and disappointing. But that is the case of Yolanda Holmes. I hope you guys have enjoyed this story time with me. Um, and make sure you go to our Instagram and our TikTok. I'll be putting up some videos on there with pictures about Yolanda, some pictures of her son. Um, and just check that out so you can see, kind of have kind of have a visual representation of Yolanda and how she looked. Um, and I hope you guys will join us next week for our podcast. And once again, happy Black History Month. We'll see you guys next week.